And welcome to another episode of Impressions of America. I'm Simon, and with me as always are Toby and Vaughn. Hi guys. Hi Simon. Hi Simon. On today's show, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by a returning guest. Felix Salmon is the Chief Financial Correspondent of Axios and host of the Slate Money podcast. Felix, thanks for coming back on the show. A great pleasure. Now, you might remember that Felix joined us on the show back in 2020 to discuss the Michael Douglas film Wall Street, and today we have another film to talk about. The Big Short from 2015, an adaption of Michael Lewis's book of the same name and directed by Adam McKay, looks at the events surrounding the housing market collapse in 2008. So as a kind of starter for, for 10 on this one, can we just get a, a, a general feeling on the film and do you think it works as both a piece of entertainment and as an informative takedown of the banking industry at this time felix do you want to go first on that it was entertaining i'll give it that um is it a takedown of the banking industry i would say yes is it informative i would probably push back against that one i think very few people actually learned anything from watching this movie and the people who did learn something quite often came away with false beliefs and there's a lot of you know factual didactic problems with the way that this movie is put together but there were definitely it 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 speeds along it's a good clip and you don't it doesn't lag it's you don't feel like you're in some kind of economics lecture so i guess that's um one pitfall that it didn't fall into what it, you know and then trying to avoid that pitfall i think it fell into the problem of actually just getting shit wrong okay uh vaughn do you want to go next on yeah sure um as someone who knows fuck all about any of the finances here um i found it informative and also (laughs) (laughs) i'm i mean that's like a kind of dangerous thing right because i was like oh i learned something and then have none of the expertise to actually follow up and know if what i learned was right so bit dangerous on that front um but from like a filmic perspective i i really enjoy this film i think it's a really fun way of presenting something that can be quite dry and feel like an economics lecture. Um, Even the history of it, if you're not like super into it, you're going to kind of graze over it or go to the parts of a financial crisis in history that you find most interesting or um, most important, like how it impacted the actual average person. Um, so I, I, I do. I like this film. I think it's fun. I really love the kind of interludes with Margot Robbie and Anthony Bourdain and Selena Gomez. Um, I think that's an interesting, fun way to be like, we know that you don't know what's going on, but let's do something to speed this along and help you keep up, kind of. Um, the cast is phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Uh, at like every point when you think the whole cast has been introduced and then they just like hit you with some new characters that you're like, oh my God, they're in this? That's so fun. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a it's a good time um, and maybe a dangerous film if it's not presenting things 
quite well enough. But I do think it does leave me with a bit of a feeling of like V for Vendetta, where I'm like, burn it all to the fucking ground. You know? <laughs> to be fair, that's what you get from most films, Bob. Um, oh, yeah. My stasis. <laughs> Toby, uh, any sort of general thoughts on the film? No, I thought I thought I really enjoyed this movie. I, I echo what you guys have, have said. I think as it was a actually a fabulous uh, popularization of the of the financial crisis. Uh, there's a lot of uh, concepts here that are um, put through by the actors. Um, credit default swap, security, all, all this all this stuff, the process, the the regulators. There's a lot of concepts here um, that's. I think the many people who make up the audience, even though educated people, would have no clue about, and um, and they, they were conveyed through really really good acting performances. The, the obviously the use of this uh, meta style that Adam McKay enjoys using, and also like capturing the culture. You know, I think there's this, there's like a scene where they're talking to a lady who's like a financial regulator, and she's talking about moving into a job uh, within a, a bank. And you know that these people are people. They're, they're you know they they aren't uh, hidden under the 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 level of knowledge that they have about um, the bank or or the relationship between the regulator and the bank. All this. I think Adam McKay does a really good job of um, making all these people who have quite very technical jobs and they're te- very technical topic people, while still. Um, giving a popular account of, of the financial crisis. Now, I thought it was a great movie. Well, we're going to get into much more detail on, on the film specifically shortly. But first, Vaughn, you're just going to walk us through a little bit of the, the history, um, kind of up to and leading up to and including the financial collapse of 2008. Yeah, I am. Um, so to fit this in a bit, Uh, I'm also going to hijack this and go a little bit more into U.S. history also. So sorry. But um, to fit this contextually into Impressions of America, so far in this series on George Bush, we've talked about the kind of scandalous nature of the 2000 election, the nationally traumatic events of the attacks on September 11th, 2001, uh, the start of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq through 2005, and more widely about the international and domestic impacts of George W. Bush as the president of the United States and of his administration. In a future episode, we will explore his presidency more fully and particularly his second term, including the devastation of and response to Hurricane Katrina, as well as the enduring fighting in Iraq and the legacies of Bush's administration on the US and GOP at present. Today, however, As we've been saying, we're going to focus on the Great Recession and the financial crisis of 2008 by discussing the film The Big Short from 2015. So by way of like a very quick introduction to the financial crisis and the Great Recession, uh, to contextualize this historically, we're going to run through the precedent for the history of and the context around the mid-2000s economic crash. And I'm definitely going to leave the ins and outs of the financials to Felix. Um, because that is entirely outside of my wheelhouse. So financial crises in U.S. history. The U.S. has experienced many, many financial crises in its history, with economic historians agreeing that in the first 150 years of the U.S., the nation averaged about one financial crisis almost every decade. Um, Some were certainly worse than others, 
And the ones you'd likely be most familiar with are The Panic of 1857 under James Buchanan, which interestingly is the first time news of a financial crisis kind of spread quite rapidly through the country, thanks to the recently invented telegraph by Samuel Morse in 1844. Um, the two in 1873 and 1893 in the Reconstruction and Progressive Eras, you might also be familiar with. And then, of course, the financial cra crash of 1929, kicking off the better known Great Depression. So financial crises are not an invention of modern economics and have, in fact, been a part of the U.S. banking history since the start of U.S. banks. But that said... This financial crisis of 2007-2008 has very specific ramifications for us that are still unfolding today um, and also ties into the wider history of financial crises because of a 1999 decision about a Depression-era law. So the Glass-Steagall Act of 1932 and subsequent United States Banking Act of 1933 were laws regulating banking in the midst of the Great Depression. Essentially, the they separated commercial and investment banking and prevented securities firms and investment banks from also dealing with personal and business accounts. It's much more complicated than that and comprises of much more, um, but those are like the bones of it. So the efficacy and necessity of the Glass-Steagall legislation was debated throughout the 20th century and most heatedly under Reagan uh, throughout the 1980s when deregulation was like all the rage. By 1999, the legislation had been chipped away at with other policies deregulating some parts uh, and provisions within the legislation. And ultimately, Clinton signed the Financial Service Modernization Act of 1999, repealing the Glass-Steagall completely. Now keep that in mind while we shift to the financial crisis at hand under Bush. Contextually, the US economy was doing fine after Bush's reelection in 2004, but it was just fine as in not active recession. Uh, Bush had cut income taxes in 2001 and again in 2003, implemented a new program under Medicare also in 2003, and increased military spending for two wars in the meantime. There was actually a fairly steady growth to the GDP throughout Bush's administration, um, barring the dips towards the end of his presidency owing to the financial crisis. National debt had grown significantly during his tenure from 2001 to 2009 um, as a result of the tax cuts, Medicare spending, other federal programs, and the dramatic increase from $300 billion on military expenditures in 2001 to $600 billion in 2008. The financial crisis of 2007-2008-ish, however, actually started to percolate in 2005 when fund manager Michael Burry predicted a credit default swap against subprime mortgage bonds with Deutsche, Deutsche Bank valued at $60 million. Um, he predicted that they would become volatile within two years. Again, I will leave that to Felix to explain better, but essentially, and please correct me if I am wrong, a credit default swap means that the seller in the agreement will compensate the buyer if the, if the debts purchased are defaulted on. In other words, one person or banking institution buys the title of person X's debts from the holder of those debts. And if person X defaults and cannot pay their debts, then the original holder of the debts will compensate the buyer for the lost funds. 
Now that's exactly what happened. Um, by 2006, the housing market in the US had been steadily increasing their asking prices for homes, meaning more and more people were taking out higher mortgages for lower quality home houses and at rates they couldn't feasibly afford. For years, deregulation and increasingly relaxed standards for granting mortgages meant that a third of all mortgages in the US in 2006 were subprime or no documentation loans. So two things happened here. One, banks sold unpayable mortgage titles in bundles to other institutions as credit default swaps. They packaged the higher risk mortgages that people couldn't afford and sold them in these agreements that if the bor borrowers defaulted, the original holders would financially compensate the buyers of the bundles. Two, people became de delinquent or defaulted on their mortgages. In February 2007, stock prices in China and the US fell and delinquency had been on the rise, prompting the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation or Freddie Mac uh, to announce that it would stop investing in some subprime loans. By April, New Century, a real estate investment trust that specialized in giving these subprime mortgages, filed for bankruptcy protection. This is when the kind of housing bubble burst. So banks and real estate trust institutions began liquidating or bailing out their hedge funds or filing for bankruptcy throughout the summer in the US. By September, international banks had to be bailed out for their US dealings affected by the crisis, including Northern Rock in the UK being bailed out by the Bank of England. More banks failed, liquidated, or required financial support throughout October and November, and by December, the Federal Reserve began giving short-term credit loans to banks with subprime mortgage holdings. The crisis led to the US dollar weakening and stocks plummeting in 2008, which initiated the Great Recession that affected millions of Americans and people worldwide as international economies tumbled in trepidatious kind of response. As with nearly every financial crisis before in US history, investors and individual account holders panicked and there were runs on the banks to secure one's investments and assets in the wake of such kind of chaotic failures in the financial world. On October 3rd, 2008, with a vote of 263 to 171, heavily favored by Democrats and opposed by Republicans, the House voted to enact the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act of 2008, which created the $700 billion Troubled Asset Relief Program to, to purchase the failed subprime mortgages that initiated this financial crisis. I'm sure we will get much more into the kind of ramifications of this crisis, but if you guys are happy with that context, then I think we can jump in with the film without getting too far ahead of ourselves. Well, thank you, Vaughn. Um, Felix, I don't know if you can tell, we've got slightly more professional now. We've let Vaughn actually do history and introductions and stuff for us. Um, I, would, I would agree with like at least half of that. Oh, sweet. That's all I need. Cool. <laughs> 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 okay, so the first question I, I had, uh, Felix, was actually at the very start of the film, um, where it, it depicts late 70s banking, and I quote here, as a fucking snooze filled with losers. And then Louis Ranieri came along with his private uh, label, uh, MBS, uh, and it transformed everything. I, I, is that accurate? Yeah, pretty much. There, there was this... Um... 
famous characterization of the of the late the 1970s banking system is uh, or of 1970s bankers is 363 which means um take money in take take deposits in at three percent lend money out at six percent and then leave the office by three o'clock um it was a very simple reasonably profitable quite boring not particularly risky business to be in um 100 uh in line with with the, the sort of boring Glass-Steagall world. But we should note that what Lou Ranieri did at Salomon Brothers was also 100% in line with the boring Glass-Steagall world, right? Because all that Glass-Steagall did was it said that investment banks and commercial banks should be separated. So he was at an investment bank. He was at Salomon Brothers. There were other investment banks like you know, Merrill Lynch, Bear Stearns, they could do whatever risky stuff they liked. And they were not boring. They were, you know, they were always involved in stocks and trades and taking on risk and that kind of thing. And then the commercial banks were much more boring. Um, Vaughn implied in her introduction that the repeal of Glass-Steagall like, led in some way to the crisis. Um, which is highly debated. I, I wouldn't actually agree with that. Um, if you look at the um, the banks that survived the crisis, they were the big merged banks. It was the, precisely the the risky, smaller, pure investment banks like Bear Stearns um, or Merrill Lynch, which failed. And um, and so yeah, the risk was always happening, right? And and. Uh, like Salomon Brothers wound up part of Citigroup. Citigroup came close to failing, but ultimately um, sailed through, you know, survived the crisis. Um, but yeah, I would say that the risk had become, the, the risks had become bigger by the time of the financial crisis because everything just became bigger. Finance became bigger. The stock market became bigger. Um, and what you saw during the mid 2000s was the intermediation became bigger and like 20, 25% of the market capitalization of the stock market was in the financial sector. You know, the middlemen became the economy. So that was, that was a weird time to be alive. So at the start of the film, we see Dr. Berry uh, played by Christian Bale talk about early indicators that the housing market isn't as strong as people think and leading to Dr. Berry shorting the housing market as, as, Vaughn described in her introduction, um, much to the glee of the giant banks as, as, as it's depicted in the film. Um, can you explain to us what Dr. Barry was seeing that others weren't? And do you think the film accurately portrays the attitude people had um, towards anyone who might attempt to short a housing market, considering, as I understand it from the film, that wasn't a thing at the time and they had to sort of create that, especially for him? So a, a couple of different things going on here. Um, the first thing we should I, I should mention is that Vaughan was a little bit wrong about what the banks were doing with mortgages. They weren't selling the the, the banks mostly in the first instance were not selling CDS. They were just securitizing the mortgage, which uh, which is known as um, MBS or CMBS or, or RMBS, residential mortgage backed securities. That's just 
taking the mortgages and move, taking the person who owns the mortgage and making the person who owns the mortgage will sell it to someone else. Um, there's no derivative transaction. There's no rocket science there at all. Um, and then what Michael Burry did was he said, like, I think this market is going to crash. He was a little bit like prescient about that. And so he wanted to find a way of shorting it. So he meets up with Greg Lippmann, a Deutsche Bank who's paid, played by um, Ryan Gosling. And between them, they, they start building this product known as the, you know, the, the CBS, um, which the, the synthetic bets that the mortgage market is going to crash. And he starts buying it and a bunch of other people start buying it. And that is the problem, right? That is in many ways the cause of the financial crisis is that it's not just the people who own the mortgages are selling the mortgages to other people. And then the only people who hurt is whoever owns the mortgage. Suddenly you get a whole bunch of second order, third order, fourth order bets on those mortgages from people who don't own the mortgages. And this is the scene in the movie that's explained by Selena Gomez and Dick Taylor in the casino. And the problem is people like Michael Barry, people like Steve Eisman, who's um, played by Steve Carell, people um, like Greg Lippmann, frankly, you know, the, the Ryan Gosling character are creating hundreds of billions of dollars of bets on the relatively small subprime, mor subprime mortgage sector. So when the subprime mortgage sector does collapse, suddenly it's not just the holders of those mortgages who, um, who lose money, but it's investors who have taken these bets around the world, you know, Norwegian banks, um, you know, German savers, you name it, a whole bunch of people around the world found out that they had exposure to the US mortgage sector, even when they might not have had any actual mortgage mortgages in their in their portfolio at all. And really that is all Greg Lippmann's fault and it's all Michael Burry's fault, you know, and, and in many ways, and this is one of the reasons I'm critical of this movie, um, it, you know, they're the heroes of the movie, weirdly, you know, they're the good guys, mm -hmm. whereas in fact, they were the people who caused the whole crisis in the first place. Really? Okay, so, so that, that, that I'd like to dig a little bit more. To, so the, the film obviously represents the the way it plays out as basically the sort of this sink is the, the ship is sinking or it's about to sink and no one's really aware of it and these guys sort of are, are smart enough to sort of take advantage of it while feeling a bit guilty about it but in reality that's that's not true then well i mean it's that's that's perfectly true it's perfectly true that they took advantage of it sure it's certainly true that they may have felt a little bit guilty about it although i'm not entirely sure how guilty they actually felt about it um yeah, so that, that bit is true. I think what what's not true is that they, the idea that they didn't actively contribute to it. Mm, um, you know, they like with like the the way that derivatives work, the way that credit default swaps work, is the way that all derivatives work, which is they're all zero sum bets. There's for every winner, there's a loser, and for every loser, there's a winner. Right, so when the credit default swaps all blew up and paid out and all the rest of it, all those hundreds of billions of dollars that people lost on credit default swaps were also hundreds of billions of dollars of gains to someone else. Sure. And 
and so you know money just moved from a bunch of you know um norwegian pension funds to people like john paulson or michael barry mm-hmm. or you name it and 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 the people who lost money were generally savers who couldn't afford to lose it and pension funds who couldn't afford to lose it and the people who made money were these with these hedge fund managers great uh, a, a key theme throughout the whole film is that no one is paying attention to the details either in the mortgages themselves or the possible signs of trouble in the market uh, in the film when they're in florida some of the characters are interviewing various home buyers and we hear that anyone can buy a mortgage regardless of income or financial security and mortgages are taken out in pets' names. What was that really happening in America at the time? And yes, has that, has yes, that changed absolutely. since? And has that changed yes. since? Yes, yes. That was that was a, a thing that was definitely happening in the mid two thousands, and absolutely stopped happening during the financial crisis, and has not come back. Okay, so so that that is an accurate representation, and think because one of the questions I have later on is whether or not things have actually changed and. You would kind of hope that being able to take a, a mortgage out in your pet's name would be one of them. Um, so that's, that's Absolutely, true. like that. Like we we are very good about that. And um, in fact, in fact, if you like, Vaughan was saying that like a third of the mortgages being written in two thousand five, two thousand six were were subprime. Right now, it's effectively zero. The quality of mortgages being written right now has never been higher. Huh? Well, that <laughs> that is um, that's something at least. Um, can I? Yeah, go for, go for it, Vaughn. Yeah, go. And also, thank you, Felix, for fixing <laughs> my part. Um, I so one of the things that they also say so many times throughout the film is who doesn't pay their mortgage, and maybe because I'm watching it now in 2022, or because of my kind of background growing up, like to me, I was questioning. Have they never heard of poor people? But in 2007, poor people I don't guess... have mortgages for them. Like that's the thing, right? We we have well, this very bifurcated world in America, where you have like roughly 60, 65 percent of the population owns a home, and then 40, 35, 40 percent doesn't. You have renters, and that cleavage corresponds very, very exactly to you know, the people who own tend to be the richer 65% and the people who don't own tend to be the poorer 40%. Um, so yeah, there are poor people, but there aren't that many poor people with mortgages. The, the one thing you're right about is that um, in 2005, 2006, suddenly that was the point at which poor people started buying homes, right? That was what, that, that's basically what subprime means, is it means poor people buying homes. And specifically, it turned out that a lot of the poor people buying homes were buying homes that they couldn't afford because homes were homes were expensive things and poor people don't have money. So that, but the point they were making in terms of who doesn't pay their mortgage is that historically banks wouldn't lend money to poor people and therefore poor people wouldn't have the opportunity to default on their mortgage. But then you have the, as you say, the, the change sort of um, 2005 or 2006, that's when they start giving um, these bad mortgages out, and that's when the, the market uh, becomes more volatile. Um, just on that then, so we have mentioned subprime, and we learned from the film that I think it's Margot Robbie that says, if you hear subprime, think shit. Um, and we also hear other terms such as CDO, 
and synthetic CDO, and they're explained with the various sort of uh, meta moments, uh, as we've already discussed. Um, I'd be interested to hear from each of you just how you thought those parts worked, and Felix, especially as someone who actually knows about this kind of thing, how did, how did those explanations work for you? And did you feel they were sort of accurate and, and represented in sort of layman terms what was happening? Um, do you think they did that well? So um, let me pick one of you at random, Toby. Um, when how how long ago did you watch this movie? Uh, I, I watched it for the first time maybe a few months ago, and then I watched it again a couple of days ago. Okay, so you've watched it twice within the what the first three months. And you've watched it as recently as just a couple of days ago. Um, can you tell me what Margot Robbie said or what she was talking about when she was in the bathtub? Uh, I know she looked really good. <laughs> I can't remember exactly what she was talking about. This is like I've asked. Um, all right, let me ask. Fawn, uh, Simon, can either of you tell me what she was talking about when she was in the bathtub? I would I would echo uh, Toby's original thoughts on that about her looking good. And from what I recall, the, she, she was talking about um, subprime mortgages and how subprime meant shit. That that was kind of what <laughs> what what I took away from it. But I do also remember the bubble baths and the um, there was the, a lot of bubble baths. There was, yeah. there was, there was, that, there was a lot like of that. We all remember that scene, and we all remember the visual, and none of us remember anything about really what she was saying and. And that is my, you know, that's one of my critiques is that, you know, you can get like a naked lady to try and explain the subprime bonds to you. But frankly, people don't really remember what the naked lady is saying. And it's a great excuse to get like a naked lady in a movie, but it's not very useful as a way of explaining what's going on with subprime. On you much prefer naked ladies than financial talks. How did you feel about the scene? I, I do indeed, Simon. Um, <laughs> I... <laughs> I yeah no uh, honestly partly I was focused on her her accent also as well mm. as the vision because I didn't know what Margot Robbie's voice sounded like and I remember her saying when you think subprime think dog shit and she was explaining that it, like it means poor people getting mortgages um but yeah not the most effective kind of Pedagogical technique. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so Vaughn, you're not going to take similar approaches when you uh, take up uh, uh, teaching again after after the summer. Oh, God. Classes? No. Oh, God. Simon, you're going to get me fired. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, let, let's move on. Then. Uh, so, so, sorry, folks. Did you have anything more on, on, on that or, or are you happy? So, with so I, like, the weird thing is, um, so the Margot Robbie thing, I think, is the worst of them. The Anthony Bourdain thing, I think, was quite good. Mm-hmm. The um, Greg Littman, Ryan Gosling trying to explain CDO tranches using a Jenga tower is so unbelievably wrong, it's embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is truly terrible. It is, it is, um, it's not just dumbed down, but it's actually actually actively 100% wrong and I hate it and um, the best of the lot 
is actually Selena Gomez and, and Dick Taylor. But one of the reasons why no one actually remembers that bit either, or like the, the content of it, rather than just saying, oh, look, it's Selena Gomez, is because the lesson of it, which is kind of what I was just talking about, about it all being the fault of the purported good guys, is so at odds with the message of the film that you kind of there's a cognitive disconnect there mm. and then you you kind of ignore that from that point on so yeah like i i feel like not hugely successful those things i i oh. do i have this in my notes because i thought it was a bit confusing but again i'm very not an expert in any of this kind of financial stuff but i was wondering am i how are they not the bad guys here? And in my notes, I have, I hate them. I hate all of them. Maybe Brad Pitt's okay, <laughs> but I don't think he is. I'll put right. in his vegetables. Exactly. Right. Like the, the only, the only like actually, you know, like good guy person in the entire movie is the renter, right? It's the guy who, who's been rent, paying his rent payments on time to, a house that's mortgaged in the name of his landlord's dog and then the mortgage the house gets foreclosed on he gets kicked out and he winds up homeless but yeah like it like anyone all of the principles are all terrible but somehow adam mckay didn't have the faith of his convictions on that one and 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 also it's partly michael lewis's fault because he kind of made these guys heroes in his book as well so like there are good guys and bad guys even though in fact Really, they're all bad guys. Bond doesn't need any prompts to be told that, that in, <laughs> these types of people are nope, bad guys. I but. agree. I agree. <laughs> um, it's just like every time they had a little fake moment of like, but think about the people, and especially Brad Pitt's character. Come on, man. Where he's like, oh, we're the whole world's a fucked up system, but let me just do one last job, like it's fucking Ocean's Eleven, and. He, <laughs> he, he just comes in and fucks everyone over, knows he's betting against the U.S. economy, and then goes, don't dance about it. It's nothing to celebrate. You did this! Like, you're probably the worst of all of them because you're so fucking self-righteous. But he was ahead of the time on the wearing masks thing, I'll tell you that. He was, yeah. yeah. He was. I, I yeah. have to say, rewatching that. And, that yeah, that, that, is, uh, that is something. And maybe he'll be ahead of the... the, the the sort of head of the curve when it comes to everyone buying seeds, which is apparently what we're all going to be doing next. Um, so we've kind of touched upon this already, but the film focuses on, on three sets of characters um, who are, are shorting the housing market. So you've got Dr. Berry as the Maverick Outsider, uh, Jared Bennett, who brings in Michael Baum and his crew, and then the small-time players of, of Jamie and Charlie who, who bring in uh, Ben Rickard, uh, played by Brad Pitt, to, to help with their deal. In reality, how many investors were actually shorting the housing market? And in sort of general terms, do you think these sort of three sets of characters, i.e. the visionary maverick, the established Wall Street guys, and the young uh, young up-and-comers, do you think that sort of um, represents the kind of modern sets of investors today? You know, those sort of different types of them? Um, so as I say, like the... The thing you just always need to bear in mind here is that when it comes to 
CBS and synthetics and that kind of thing. For every loser, there's a winner, right? So just, mm-hmm. just think of the hundreds of billions, think of the trillions of dollars that were lost in the financial crisis and were tied up in these instruments. And just remember that for every loser, there was a winner. And what we saw was a couple of very small time winners. And again, mm-hmm. this is this is um, related to what Michael Lewis was doing contemporaneously, which was trying to find the people betting against the housing market, more or less, you know, immediately after it collapsed. Um, and the smaller guys would talk to him and the big professional hedge funds, like weren't as interesting characters and may, might not have talked to him anyway. So we, he wound up concentrating on smaller guys and by, you know, the rules of fiction and nonfiction like if you're a small guy taking a big risk and it pays off then that's a you know that's like a hero's journey there you know Mm -hmm. so you become slightly heroic about it but no the the, there were very very big bets made by very very big hedge funds who made very very large amounts of money and there was a lot of you know extremely corporate interest and if you're greg Littman, the, the ryan gosling character you know yeah sure you're dealing with michael barry and and these little guys, but really you're dealing with with height, with very large professional credit funds. Because the film talks about Ryan Gosling's character essentially being laughed out of offices elsewhere and it's sort of falling into place that um, he, he speaks to this Michael Baum character. Um, was that the reality of it or was that sort of more uh, sort of narrative? Wait, so so narrative? One, one, of the, one of the problems is... One of the problems with this movie is they keep on changing everyone's name. <laughs> so I'm having difficulty keeping up. Michael Bolton was like a character in Office Space. Who's Michael Bolton? Michael Baum is the character that's played oh, Michael, by... Yeah. Michael Baum is Steve Eisman. Right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, Steve Carell plays a character whose, na- whose name in the movie is Michael Baum, but whose mm-hmm. name in real life is Steve Eisman. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And who's also a relatively small investors yes mm-hmm. the 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 name the big short right refers to something that goldman sachs did right one of the reasons why goldman sachs came through the crisis pretty unscathed is they had this massive short position in mm-hmm. mortgage bonds right that was the big short there's nothing to do with steve eisman or michael barry or any of these small-time guys or even greg Lippman, who was like the biggest guy in the movie, but by no means the biggest guy in real life on the short side of this trade. The big guys on the short side of the trade in real life were people like Goldman Sachs. That, that's, and as you said, that sort of fits in with what you were saying earlier about all these bets being placed elsewhere and, and about for, you know, everyone or there's a loser and, and that kind of thing. But as I suppose that kind of comes back to your point about the film maybe representing these three um or three groups of of, of um investors as the it, it sort of focal point of the story and that it certainly seemed as if ryan gosling's character was um almost lucky to find someone else who would sort of go along with the financial deal um with him and in reality that that was not the case then there were a lot of people writing these things. He might Lickman might might have been a little bit earlier on early on this, but yeah, he there there were a lot of people in that deal. And then conversely, the the question the the obvious question is like who's on the other side of this trade, right? If they're all selling, who's buying? And this is where the movie 
wheels out this this guy Wing Chow, who again isn't named in the movie, but um, there's this sort of pivotal scene in the middle of the movie where Steve Carell, Steve Eisman, Michael Baum, that guy, you know, yeah. has <laughs> dinner with um, the CDO manager from New Jersey, yes, who's, in who's based on this based on this guy Wing Chow, um, who's just this slimy, greedy, lazy, yep. like just like the the worst of the black hats, right? Um, and, you know, again, like, sh- were there slimy, greedy, lazy CDO, um, had, like, fund managers out there? Of course there were. Um, but really, like, he is the guy who's representing, you know, the little guy. He is the guy <laughs> who's representing you know, the Norwegian pension funds or the... Mm-hmm people with their money in like re- really safe money market accounts or, you know, that kind of thing. He's, he's the guy who's trying, who's just trying to keep money safe. He's not like chasing for enormous amounts of yield. He's just like, give me triple A rated bonds and I'll put them in my fund and I will go play golf at 3 PM because like it's triple A rated and what do I have to worry about? And he is the guy that everyone else is actually taking advantage of, right? He is the guy that, that the, you know, Michael Barriers of this world are screwing in this trade. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, just, I, I want to ask a question. Yeah, only go to me. So uh, within the movie, uh, Ryan, I think it's Ryan Gosling's character, he describes um, Alan Greenspan as one of the architects uh, of the crisis. I want to know um, what you think was the cause or what, what uh, the government, uh, the American government was, was failing to do and, and how uh, decisions on a macroeconomic level influenced the, the housing crisis, if, if any. Oh, uh, okay. So, yeah, there was... Uh, so, the way that the Federal Reserve works is basically, most of the time, certainly in the 2000s, do you just keep on reducing interest rates unless and until there's a, there's a sign that inflation is going to happen. And you have this dual mandate at the Fed, which basically says you want to keep steady prices. You can't have inflation getting out of control, but you also need to get to full employment. And the way you get to full employment is by having interest rates as low as possible for as long as possible. And especially if you care, you know, about the kind of people who get, you know, hired last, black folk, marginalized folk, poor folk, you really do need interest rates to be quite low for quite long in order for them to get jobs. And what Greenspan did, and the reason he was known as the maestro, was that he was willing to keep interest rates very low for a long amount of time because he reckoned that it wouldn't actually cause inflation. And everyone, and you know, people worried that inflation would come Inflation didn't come. He was kind of right about that. And those low interest rates did, however, have a second order effect. They caused what's known as asset price inflation. Now, the Fed doesn't care about asset price inflation. And in fact, Alan Greenspan quite liked it. Asset price inflation is basically just the stock market going up, you know, house prices going up. And it makes people feel wealthier and happier. And so it's like, it's kind of good inflation in a way. Um, So... That was the housing bubble, right? That because interest rates were so low, 
house prices could go up. You could start getting the speculative fever in house prices. And then the real villain here is not so much the Fed, although they, you know, they do bear some of the responsibility, but not so much in terms of monetary policy, but more in terms of banking regulation, right? The, the villains are the banks who underwrote all of these loans without worrying about whether the people could repay them. And the reason they didn't worry about whether people could repay them was they said, well, look, the loans are secured on the houses. The houses are only going up in value. And therefore, even if people don't repay the loans, we don't care because we'll just get the house and the house is going to be worth more than it was when we wrote the loan. And so no harm, no foul. We'll just sell the house and pay, us, pay ourselves back in full on the loan, right? So it was that kind of not, that, that lacks underwriting, lacks bank regulation. Um, and as Vaughan intimated in her introduction, the fact that the government itself in the form of Freddie Mac, which technically was a private company, but everyone knew was kind of a government-backed agency, um, was buying up subprime loans. Everything, everyone was like into this idea that you could you could lend freely against houses because house, because house prices never went down. And that was the real problem. And there were def, there was definitely a regulatory oversight in that, you know, in, in that the regulators should have stopped that from happening and didn't. In the movie, they, they also mentioned that uh, some of the regulatory agencies, I think it's Steve, Steve Carell's character, mentions that that they are private companies. So that there, there becomes like a, there's a market for regulation. And, and if you if you are um, approving st- certain standards to a, to a low level, then you'll be able to outbid your competitive uh, regulator for for banking clients. Uh, I think I was uh, a little bit stunned. So, yeah, that was <laughs> that's interesting. That's very interesting. So Vaughn mentioned something about this in her introduction as well. Um, in, in the woman, the, the rating agency who, um, you know, was talking about going to work for a bank. Um, the rating agencies are not regulators. The rating agencies have never been regulators. They are private companies who look at bonds and make their own best judgment as to how likely it is that those bonds will be repaid. And they are definitely, definitely one of the great villains of the financial crisis um, in that they wound up getting paid by the banks effectively to give AAA ratings to a bunch of stuff that should never have had a AAA rating. And yeah, there was a bunch of you know reasonably corrupt activity going on there. But I would never call them regulators. And they were never designed to be regulators. Uh, one last question is, uh, in terms of uh, Ben Bernanke and, and and Paulson, do you think that the uh, initial uh, positions in terms of um, trying to sustain uh, some of the banks, um, AIG, for ex- example, um, and uh, other other companies were was was good? And do you think that the the first um, the first policy reactions to the banking crisis uh, were, were made um, were, were were sound and, and were, were were things that you would approve of. 
Um, okay, a lot, a lot going on there. Um, so first of all, uh, the architect of a lot of this was actually Tim Geithner, who was the head of the New York Fed at the time. Um, if you look at how, if you look at what happened when Bear Stearns went bust, that was like the best possible outcome to an investment bank going bust is that it gets rescued by a deeply capitalized commercial bank. So JP Morgan, which was this huge, big commercial bank, bought Bear Stearns for $2 a share. All of Bear Stearns creditors got paid off in full. Um, and, the, and the system basically survived that crisis. Um, a bit later on, Merrill Lynch winds up realizing that it's in a very similar situation to the to the one that Bear Stearns was in. So it winds up selling itself to Bank of America but for like $50 billion, which is way more than it was worth. Um, but, but the point there being, again, that's what you want to see. You want to see these investment banks becoming part of a big, safe commercial bank because once they're part of a big, safe commercial bank, like JP Morgan or Bank of America, then they can't go bust anymore and they can't bring the whole financial system down with them. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I'm definitely not blaming Glass-Steagall here, because the whole reason you're allowed to, so I mean, the repeal of Glass-Steagall, because the whole reason that JP Morgan was allowed to buy Bear Stearns or that Bank of America was allowed to buy Merrill Lynch is precisely because Glass-Steagall had been repealed. If it hadn't been repealed, things would have been much worse and much more difficult to, to solve. The real problem happens when Lehman Brothers goes bankrupt, um, because there is no buyer, or rather there is a buyer but it's a British bank, Barclays, which then the Brits actually basically say, look, no, this is way too risky. You can't buy this bank. And so that deal falls through at the last minute. And then Lehman actually does go bankrupt. It is not bailed out by the government. And then all hell breaks loose. And that's the point, you know, September 15, 2008, when really the crisis, that's like, that's the point at which everyone goes, holy shit this shit is getting real. And that's, you know, that's like the, the, the most crunch point of the, of the crisis when you're like, we are now officially very much in a financial crisis and the worst case scenario just happened. So um, my next question was um, around the, some of the characters when they're sort of digging into um, what the financial whether or not there's a bubble and we see the Steve Carell character and some of his colleagues going to Florida to try and understand this better. In reality, were, were people sort of having these weekend trips away to try and un understand whether or not there were <laughs> bubbles or were these people sort of clued up enough to, you know, make, make investments or otherwise, or, or make investments and, and sort of know through other means rather than having to have uh, away trips with their, with their colleagues. Well, I mean, it's very hard to make a, a movie, you know, without a stripper in it, apparently, if you're Adam McKay, you know, you've got to get that stripper in there somehow. Um, but yeah, no, the um, a lot of the investors, a lot of the hedge funds who are buying this stuff, you're absolutely right, just stayed in their offices staring at screens and they didn't need to go um, interview strippers. But some did, you know, it's not yeah. it's not unheard of to do that kind of legwork. Um, yeah, well, good to see you, Solis. <laughs> <laughs>
somewhat um, accurate. The, the, the next question I had was some of the, the financial characters that, that we meet, the sort of finance bro characters, um, we, we see them in, in uh, Florida and we see some of them in Las Vegas. <laughs> do, you th- do you think that that is accurate to the sort of type of people who are um, involved in you know, selling mortgages or um, in different dealings? Is, is this finance bro very much a, an, an accurate representation as it's shown in the film? Yeah, pretty much. Like, yeah, it's it, it's not an industry that tends to tends to attract the most altruistic and you know deeply big-hearted of people. So, so you, you think uh, you you don't think uh, you know the, the sweethearts of the world are, are drawn to um, giving people bad mortgages and ninja loans and um, those types of things? Okay, fair enough. Um, I, I do, I do think, I do think you know that there is this interesting scene in the movie where they're like, "Why is it? Why are these people confessing?" And they're like, "They're not yes. confessing; they're boasting." And it it is true that a lot of the people who are selling these mortgages. Um, at the time, did not consider themselves to be doing anything wrong, mm-hmm. right? It is the American dream to be able to buy a home. Yep. And what they were doing was they were allowing people to buy homes who had never had the opportunity to buy a home before. And that feels good when you're doing it. And it does not feel like you're some kind of, you know, dastardly moustache twirling evildoer yeah i do want to ask another question because um christian bale's character is michael uh, barry and uh steve Carell's character both of them are seen as kind of like distinct mavericks in the movie and they're talking to people who are quite uh credulous you know uh, about the by the financial system at the time but do you think there was this like division between most people who had no idea that something like this could happen and then just a few people, especially because, you know, you do have um, Bernanke talking to Bush, uh, you know, the, the year before the crisis saying that, you know, there is too much leverage in, in, in this economy and there might be a crisis in the future. Do you think that people at financial institutions at the time just were just didn't think that anything like this could happen at all and then there was just a couple people who, who did or? i think everyone in banking you know as vaughan mentioned financial crises happen every decade or so like no one's um no one kids themselves in the, in the finance world that like the financial crises are a thing of the past um but there's a difference between understanding in theory that a financial crisis might come from somewhere and understanding very specifically that, you know, there is likely to be a financial crisis very soon and that it is the mortgage market in particular that is likely to precipitate it. And so while the former feeling was quite widespread, you know, a lot of people, you know, whenever stocks go up, you know, whenever there's a lot of liquidity in the system and a lot of leverage in the system, people sort of worry in an abstract way about, oh, you know, this could be bad. You know, that's how crises start. But on this very specific level, when it came to mortgages, yeah, that that one was um, much less common. That Like this particular corner of the financial world would be the particular corner that would set everything off. 
So tying it back to um, the George W. Bush series that we're doing, and apologies if you've kind of already, already answered this, what, what was there specific red tape cutting that the George Bush administration was doing that, that led to this in that was different or that was more aggressive than what had come before and you know what had come through the 80s and 90s? I'm going to say no to that one. I mean, it's it's a good question. And the real blame is, you know, the, the, the big deregulators, sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. The big deregulatory push actually happened much more under Clinton than under Bush, mm. right? You, you, had, you had Bob Rubin, you had Larry Summers, you had Clinton himself, all being pretty much um, captured by Wall Street in many ways. Wall Street basically got whatever it wanted under Clinton, um, including the repeal of Glass-Steagall. And the big explosion of finance and the way that, you know, intermediation became such a large part of the American economy happened largely under Clinton. So Bush comes along and what he does is the regulators exist, but they become more OTOs, let's say. You know, they just kind of sit back. They have a very laissez-faire approach to regulation. And so whatever, regulate, whatever regulatory checks and balances were retained by the Clinton administration are there in name under Bush, but maybe, maybe less mm. in practice. The regulators aren't really on the ball but there's not a huge amount of evidence to be honest that they were particularly on on the ball under clinton either which fits into our theory we did a, a series on clinton and we all kind of concluded that he was terrible and we dislike him and he has no legacy so um that, that kind of fits in well um there's a film there's a scene in the film where jamie and charlie so these are the younger investors end up going to the Wall Street Journal to try and expose what's happening. But they, Oh my they, God, that they, scene. What the fuck is going on in that scene, man? So they get they get turned away because the, the journalist doesn't want to uh, sort of break up the connections that he has. So I'm, I kind of got a preemptive answer to this, but I was wondering... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, fun. literally one of the worst... Like, you know, Wall Street is... I mean, Hollywood <laughs> is terrible at... at, at depicting journalists and journalism we know yes. this and i i have a very low bar when it comes to expectations of depictions of journalism in um in hollywood but jesus christ this one managed to be like subterranean what the hell was going on in that scene yeah so so they get they get turned away because i think the guy says his wife is doing a master's degree and whatever you know he's trying to financially support his his family and he doesn't want to break up the ties he's worked so hard for uh, to, to, to make on Wall Street. And it's kind of the, the, the film kind of sets in stone that um, the newspaper industry and the media are just going to flatly ignore this and not look into it for fear of the big banks um, shouting at them. Um, I'm, if, if, <laughs> if someone had come to a Wall Street journal or whoever uh, with, you know, this type of lead, uh, f- first of all, would they... Would they come to the Wall Street Journal that type of lead and saying what sort of reaction would you be expecting? So not only would they, but they did. And not only mm-hmm. did they, but the Wall Street Journal wrote that story over and over again. Right. right. So, like 
this idea that the financial press didn't see this coming or wasn't, you know, didn't cover it until it was too late is just false. I was part of the financial press at the time, and I was reading stories about all of these shenanigans for, you know, Mm -hmm. all the way through like 2007, even back to 2006, but certainly in 2007 and all the way through 2008. Like these stories were appearing. The Wall Street Journal was writing these stories. New York Times was writing these stories. I was writing these stories. Lots of people were writing these stories. And Wall Street broadly, you know, kind of shrugged and said, yeah, whatever. They're like, you know, it's, we're not that influential on Wall Street for journalists. You may, you may be surprised to hear. But like, number one, we were writing these stories. And number two, um, this idea that, like, A, that any journalist would have an office like that. I mean, come on. It's like a, a massive office with huge windows, like high up in the sky overlooking Manhattan. You're like, really? That's how journalists work? I don't think so. Um, but, like, B, that we would, like, we would just say, well, you know, on the one hand, my obligation as a journalist is to the truth. But on the other hand, I get paid very well to ignore the truth and just write whatever Wall Street wants me to write. Like, literally no journalist ever does that. That's just not a thing. Well, I can only apologize, apologize Felix, for when uh, they, they, make a, they make a film in, in 20, year, 20 years' time and we depict you as... Uh, falsely ignoring the leads that we gave to you about whatever financial crisis, but but also happened. like the thing that puzzles me about that scene is that it has no place in the movie, right? Yeah, it just gets slotted in there randomly. There's nothing leading up to it. There's no. It, it has no consequences. It has no place in any like character arc it just gets put in as a little bit of journalist bashing two-thirds into the movie for no other reason than to bash journalists and he's like dude like there are <laughs> lots of villains but no i don't think the journalists were the villains in this story i i think it's especially kind of odd because at another point in the film i don't remember which character it was but somebody's holding a like a a other kind of like news item for wall street they're holding it and it's talking about the the crisis that's actively unfolding so like there were clearly people publishing about this and the film knows that and the film acknowledges it and shows that these main characters were reading about it uh but then also has this this journalist bashing scene just to kind of prop up the jamie and charlie characters i think mm -hmm. um, show that they're the altruistic ones but they're also just as bad as fucking everyone else. <laughs> Thank you, Vaughn. Just while, while we're on the, the topic of journalism, do you think, and this is sort of a, a broader question, do you think these kind of narrativizations, you know, because obviously when you write financial journalism, you're trying to explain something that's abstract in, in a way that people understand, but do you think these kind of big book narrativizations of financial crisis or even like uh, companies that go under, say, take uh, the barbarians at the gate, the fall of RJR Nabisco or Michael Lewis's uh, Big Short. Do you think? Do you think they work? Do you think they generally work? And do you think they're they're generally good? Or? I would say um, they definitely have their place. They're 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 important records. Um, like too big to fail the Andrew Ross Sorkin like contemporaneous account of 
of the crisis, I think is a very important historical document. And it's very good that it got written when it did, as quickly as it did, while the memories were still fresh. What someone like Michael Lewis does, or what Adam McKay is doing here, is much more uh, building a narrative, trying to make a story. And history, as you guys all know, is messy, right? It's like, you know, lots of things happen at the same time, and then you can p-hack your way into trying to find some kind of through line and story to try and understand it but but history doesn't work in a in that way normally you know history and reality is just like one thing happening and another thing happening and another thing happening and if you try and create a story with a narrative arc and the beginning in the middle and an end and like you know you got the hero's journey where like everything looks terrible, but then he's triumphs or whatever, like that, you know, that tends not to give you the most accurate idea of the complexities of reality. Let's just put it that way. I, I personally think that we should be more harsh on people who write for a living. Um, although that <laughs> might just be me. Um, <laughs> uh, only that people who are writing two books at once. That's that's like unforgivable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah fuck those guys. Yeah, well, let's let's them? let's worry about the people who are making the money. Um, the, <laughs> um, the so one of the last questions I had for you, Felix, was at the very end of the film. Um, the, there's sort of titles that that come up on the screen, and it talks about how CDOs have basically become. I think they refer to it as a bespoke tranche opportunity um is that you know is that kind of what happened did we just sort of rebrand things and then people just went went on selling these things again i mean you already mentioned earlier that you know i can no longer get a mortgage for my cat thank you very much but um the you know so we've learned that lesson but how, how was there just a rebranding exercise on some of the other things and then it just sort of went back back to the way it was no, no. I mean, so like CD, CDS still exists, CDOs still exist. You know, there, there was like a tiny little article in the Wall Street Journal that came out just before they finished editing the movie. And they're like, oh, they're coming back. And they're called Bespoke Tranche Opportunity. Like there is a lot of rebranding that happens in Wall Street. Um, mm-hmm. Junk bonds became high yield. Leveraged buyouts became private equity. So yeah, rebranding does happen. But yet... In terms of like subprime CDOs, no, those those basically don't exist. Certainly not anything like the volume that they used to. Mainly, mainly because, as I say, like subprime mm-hmm. loans really don't exist anymore. Um, right now, if you are selling a house, you have so many bidders, you know, bidding in all cash. They don't need they don't need a mortgage at all. And the ones who do have mortgages, you know, can easily afford them. So. So yeah, that this like as Vaughn will tell you, the each crisis is different. Each crisis has a different cause, and while there will most certainly be another financial crisis, it is almost certainly not going to be caused by subprime mortgages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that one is in history now. Well, that's good to know. That's one less thing to worry about amongst all the other things. 
Um, do you guys have any other questions before um, I've, I've got one, one final one to wrap up? Um, I, I just have a thing that I want to say. Um, from a filmic kind of standpoint, I really love how they show the passage of time with these kind of montages of cultural moments. I thought that mm -hmm. was really wonderful. Um, and I love also that towards the end of the film, those cultural montages start showing more um, like homeless shelters and encampments. Mm -hmm. Just as a kind of structural thing for the film, I really like how that's done. Um, and I do like that, even though it's not really the core message of the film, and it's definitely something they just kind of threw in there for sympathy, I like that there are a couple of people who say like the average people at the end of the day are going to be the ones who have to pay for this because they always, always do. Or um, saying that they'll blame immigrants and poor people and this time teachers too. There is a bit of an acknowledgement in the film that there are actual real life ramifications for all of these things. Um, and they were fucking terrible. They were horrendous for millions of people that it quotes at the end that there are 8 million, there were 8 million people who lost their jobs, 6 million lost their homes, and that was just in the USA. So there is some kind of social awareness within this film, even though they don't do it very tactfully or very well. Mm -hmm. um, but I do like that. And I was wondering, Felix, how do you, how do you feel about that, about the actual great recession that happened after the financial crisis? Um, and how this film tries to acknowledge it. <laughs> like, I, I think, yeah, you're right. There's a certain sort of lip service paid to liberal pieties on that one. But if you actually look at the movie, those people, you know, they're not fully fleshed out characters you know as you say they're, mm -hmm. they're glimpsed out of the corner of our eye in montages um they certainly aren't centered in the narrative um the only person who's a little bit like that who we see in the movie is is you know that one guy who got who gets evicted the renter mm -hmm. um we never find out what happens to you know the stripper and her six houses we the, the real people, um, like it's always important if you're gonna if you're gonna be sort of making a political point is to is to try and make it about normal folks and the people who really get hurt and that kind of thing. But as I say, like a lot of those people were the people who were being represented by you know Wing Chow, the slimy guy in Las Vegas, and that was a point that was never really made. Um, so yeah, while while like I I understand on a political level that like it, I can see why they made that point and I can I can understand why you would be happy that they made that point on a filmmaking level as a way of like I do feel like in the movie it does feel like a little bit of an afterthought. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely tacked on as a kind of look. We thought about it, um, <laughs> but at least at least for the the audience to remember that there is a there is a human factor here and that like it was horrendous in that time period and the film definitely doesn't forefront it 
and it doesn't really set out to do that. It really is the afterthought of, oh, maybe we should probably acknowledge that people died from this, um, lost their homes, went homeless, went absolutely bankrupt in all sorts of ways. Um, I think they really fumble it a lot in the film. But I guess like a single brownie point for acknowledging that there are people that had ramifications from this is my point. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give Adam McKay like his single brownie point for that one. <laughs> a generous spirit you have there, folks. Um, the, the question I had just to tie this up, I, I was thinking about this film in relation to some of the other, the other films that, that came out about either the financial crisis itself or the recession that, that followed it. And you've got films like Margin Call, uh, The Company Men, and even Jeff Nichols' uh, Take Shelter, which isn't about that as such, but you could sort of thematically sort of think about it and think about it as, as an analogy of, of the housing market collapse. And I, I know we've kind of ragged on the big short, and but it, you know it's sort of a fun movie and uh, I think Margin Call and Company Men are, are interesting movies too. And my, my overall impression is that Hollywood has been able to put together interesting films um, about this time period and about this particular subject in perhaps a way I don't feel it's maybe done quite as well on say 9-11 or the Iraq war and I guess I was just trying to get my head around it and maybe get people's thoughts in general about why do we think Hollywood is maybe better or has been better at telling these types of stories and talking about financial institutions and you know, greed and collapse and the sort of poor man on, on the street, uh, you know, to some degree or another, as, as it's maybe shown or not shown here, um, rather than say, I don't know, the, the Iraq war or 9-11, do, do you think there's just a, a, a particular sort of narrative interest in seeing uh, the financial sector depicted in certain ways, um, such as we see here, or we see in the big short, or, or seeing margin call, sorry, or, see sort of the human cost in, in something like the company men which is about people losing their jobs as, as a result of it do you think that just sort of naturally plays into the medium of film and it, it's maybe a, a, an easier story to sort of form in, in two hours than say something like you know dealing with the iraq war or, or dealing with 9-11 i want to just come in here very quickly and say margin call is an amazing movie and is a much has much more like accuracy and verisimilitude than the big short and if you want a you know quasi documentary of mm -hmm. what happened during the financial crisis you know it's an entirely fictional movie unlike the big short but i think that actually works to its benefit great oh, great film so i did actually bring that up to the guys i don't know um margin call is actually a favorite of mine <laughs> strangely I, I don't know why but it's it's a film i keep going back to and watching and i find really entertaining and i find it's a superb cast and it works as a really sort of closed narrative of you know 90 minutes or two hours or whatever it is and i think it zips along really well as you say tells a really good uh, fictional story but uh, yes I, I was just gonna say I, I agree with you i think margin calls next but story. i i will also say that you know there's been no shortage of 9-11 and iraq war films you know and quite good ones like 25th hour the spike lee joint uh um, yeah, uh, three kings, or, three, three kings uh, or even the... like didn't didn't like you know we we you can argue about whether it's a good movie or not, but something like Zero Dark Thirty, I think, won Best Picture at the Oscars. Like these things get made, you know. 
I don't think, yeah, I don't think Zero Dark Thirty did win, but I think it was favorite from what I and then didn't win. But um, yeah. yes, I think Three Kings, from what I remember, was the original Gulf War rather than the um, second. Oh right, yeah. yeah. Um, I guess I was just thinking about something like nine eleven, um, which I don't feel as considering the impact it had. Uh, I'm not sure it's maybe had the same sort of legacy of quality of films as something like um, the Vietnam War, for instance, or, or World War II. Definitely. Vietnam was the war that like people couldn't stop making films about. And I, certainly, you know, I, for all its flaws, I, I enjoyed Big Short, and I, re, I really think Margin Call is an excellent film, and The Company Men and, and Take Shelter, although Take Shelter's maybe... Um, more thematic than anything else um, are enjoyable films so I, I guess I was just thinking out loud from my own perspective at least I, I think I've enjoyed the, <laughs> if enjoyed is the right word I've enjoyed the films about the 2008 financial collapse more than I've sort of found sort of similar level quality of films about some of the other things that have happened in the, the George Bush era and I was just trying to think out loud why that might be but um, maybe there, maybe there's no definitive answers on, those, on, on, that, on that question I think that Wall Street has a kind of mythologized view in the public kind of consciousness that makes Wall Street easily to make very sexy mm-hmm. on film for Hollywood. Um, strippers galore, you know, and <laughs> even in a film like this one uh, where Wall Street doesn't really come off very well, I think there's something within the public consciousness that draws you to it that Hollywood can really tap into for a lot of audience members. And on the flip, I think there's also something that when financials are involved and when Wall Street is is involved, I think people like to feel like they're smart enough to understand it. Mm. And that's why there is such kind of cultural draw around the Wolf of Wall Street and Wall Street from 87 and the Big Short 2015. Like, I think it makes people feel like they know something that they didn't know beforehand because Margot Robbie told them while she was naked in a bubble bath, you know? I also think it's not just uh, didactic as well. I think that the scale of these kinds of crises or these kinds of moments would take Wall Street for example, or Margin Call or, or this movie, the scale of the problem or the issue, it takes in the whole culture and the, you know, the things are going to mm. change mm. in significant ways. So much so that you can kind of get a Jeremy Irons in a, you know, in, in a suit. Yes. But still have that, that level of, I don't know, of potency in these movies. I think these movies, uh, they, when done by, by uh, good Hollywood uh, directors tend, tend to be quite, quite good. And, but they, they are actually naturally dramatic, even though they're you know, filled with all of this technical um, information. Yeah. Um, I don't really have any more questions to add. I suppose to sum up, then, I think what we're saying is that all financial journalists are terrible and that people should go watch Margin Call. I think that's what we've all agreed. Uh, <laughs> Definitely. 100%. 100%. <laughs> um, Right. Well, um, like I say, I don't have any other other questions. So um, unless anyone's got any any final points, I think we can probably close up there. I really fucking hate Michael Burry's whole like at the very end, they just tack it on in one of the titles that the the small investing that Michael Burry still does is focused on one commodity and that's water. That made me mad. 
Do you like thinking? Yeah, that that lasted that lasted for about six months after the movie came out. Now he's gone. Then then he got involved in GameStop. Okay, did he? Oh, oh interesting. Okay. That's good, Vaughn. Um, yeah. We probably have a separate podcast on whether or not you think uh, water should be considered a commodity. But uh, we'll. Oh we'll, my god. We'll we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll leave that. For <laughs> I mean, it is literally a commodity. Oh. Mm. Another that podcast. Li- another podcast. Literally, <laughs> literally a commodity. Mm, but should it be something that's like traded on Wall Street? I don't know. I think it should just be like a fucking right, shouldn't it? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you, you'll be glad to hear, Vaughn, that it's not actually traded on Wall Street very much. It's 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 probably the least traded major commodity out there. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry Vaughn. he's only a financial journalist no one's paying attention um right okay <laughs> no felix thank you so much for coming on today and thank you for thanks so for much for, it's fun yeah thank you so much for teaching us about things and you know correcting us when we're wrong and telling us that <laughs> actually uh maybe jenga wasn't the correct way to represent certain things so he just um, had the jenga tower upside down if he'd done it the <laughs> other way around it would have actually been right it was literally upside down okay well i'm, I'm afraid to say anything else in case i tr- trigger either <laughs> either felix or vaughn I'm, I'm gonna have to just say goodbye at this point i think just for the I, i'm gonna go off and speculate on some water derivatives <laughs> 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 oh god we're gonna hear about that from vaughn if you if you do okay <laughs> <laughs> thanks everyone this right. has been a, this Cheers, been a lot guys. Of fun. thanks guys Every, bye everyone we'll have another episode for you in the new future goodbye bye